Hi, I'm Ann Doherty, co-founder of Alum. And I'm Sarah Kinzenius, co-founder of Alum. And you're listening to Current. We created this podcast as a way not only to bring you our take on the most important stories happening in the energy industry this month, but as a way to better tell the human side of those stories. Alum social scientists and researchers work with some of the largest utilities in the country to help them think through the opportunities and challenges of transforming our industry. Climate change, energy storage, electric vehicles, resiliency. Behind each and every one of those is not just a grid or a complex set of networks, but people. And that's what this podcast is all about understanding the relationships between those who create energy, those who consume it, and the natural resources that make that possible. So whether you're listening to us on your commute or while going out for a walk or a run, we're grateful you chose us to be part of your day. So what do you say, Anne? Let's get to it. Hi, everyone. This is Anne Doherty. And on this episode of Current, I am accompanied by Illum's Erin Lavoie, who joins us from our Madison office. Erin is a graduate of Vermont Law School and recently published the blog Presidential Candidates, Positions on Climate in 3D, which is available on our website and on LinkedIn. Erin, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Anne. I'm excited to be here. Great. So for those of you who have not had the opportunity to meet Erin, she's been in the energy industry since 2012 and oversees the Loom's proposal and production process. And on top of that is our resident political tracker. So Erin, where does your interest in public policy come from? I started to get interested in politics in high school and then got much more involved in college in both issue and electoral campaigns, Um, worked on one of the Obama campaigns after college and have stayed pretty engaged ever since. Have you um, been following anything recently that's of particular interest to you? Oh, I follow it all, (laughs) truthfully. Yeah, I, I listen to a lot of political commentary, try to keep up on the news and and have a few choice political podcasts that I listen to uh, weekly, if not daily as well. Oh, you have to tell us about those. What are those podcasts that you listen to? I'm curious. Yeah, so um, the I listen to the daily and I, I'm a pretty big fan of Pod Save America as a political uh, podcast and um, listen to some, yeah, some other podcasts from the New Yorker, their politics podcast as well. Oh, that's great. Well, I think in this moment, it's nice to listen to podcasts and receive your news through podcasts versus, you know, television and, and the nightly news. Um, so yeah, I like to have control over it. You know, I can pick the time I, I catch up and when I'm in the right uh, mood and place to, to, want that kind of analysis, which is, you know, tough. And I'm definitely outing myself on my, uh, my orientation here by telling you what I listen to. But yeah, I, I enjoy getting it and uh, at my own speed. Yep. Yeah, no, it's great. It's great. It's interesting to hear because everyone's looking for sources of information and ways to kind of absorb what's going on in the moment um, through various media platforms. So it's, it's interesting to hear what you listen to. So along those lines, we have a lot to talk about today. So let's go ahead and dive into the blog, where essentially you're inviting our readers to put on their, as you call it, 3D glasses to critically look at the presidential candidate positions on climate. So tell us a bit about where the idea for the blog came from and a little bit about your methodology behind the piece. 
So Illum really put climate in the spotlight in our recent magazine, Ingenuity and Resilience, that I was a part of um, helping, helping to shape and edit. And to me, 2020 is really colored and shaped by the election, especially, you know, I live in Wisconsin, and we are probably the critical swing state. Um, so as far as methodology, I started by reading the candidate's statements and climate plans, and then I moved to commentary on those plans to get a perspective from others on, you know, what they entail and how maybe likely or, or unlikely they are to get passed and kind of more get a little deeper into the different components. Um, it's a little bit tough to compare them apples to apples because they do make different assumptions about things like private sector investment. So I did try to, con to stay concentrated on where there are contrasts and interesting new ideas to bring those forward, while also providing a high-level overview of their orientations toward climate issues past, you know, history, working on climate issues, and then, again, going back to their, their stated plans. Well, it's interesting. I'm excited to hear about it, but you're right. I'm glad that you're providing us with a summary because you do have to spend a lot of time sifting to figure out where people stand on issues of climate. So let's, let's go ahead and get started, um, and let's begin at a high level. Who did you profile, and what were some of your key takeaways? Well, I did profile President Trump and his primary challengers, Bill Weld and Joe Walsh. Um, that section is pretty short. They, none of them have a formal plan to combat climate change. Um, so I spent the majority of the article summing up key Democratic primary candidates' uh, plans, ideas, and orientations, including Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Pete Buttigieg, and Amy Klobuchar. All right. What? I, yeah. Go ahead. No, you oh, I was going to say, well, I think the my high level, I think, you know, well thought out climate plans that are they're aggressive have become table stakes for Democrats. And they're aligned in a lot of areas like the goal of decarbonizing the economy by 2050 and a just transition, which we're starting to hear everywhere now. Uh, they're really on the same page. Democrats, I mean, about the stakes and the high-level goals. So now we really get to talk about the fun stuff. What are the differences and ideas about the best ways to get there? That's interesting. So, Erin, you kind of summarized this wide range of perspectives from those on the Republican side who are pointedly not addressing issues of climate to those on, on the Democrat side essentially having to address climate at all uh, Democratic voters are looking for an answer on this question of climate. But some of these goals are quite ambitious and are going to take a lot to get done. So tell me a bit about what you've seen and the feasibility of, of getting these climate policies through Congress. Yeah, so, you know, I think that all comes back to this reality of partisanship that we're in right now. All of the plans are, are head and shoulders above what they were even, even four years ago, eight years ago, about what they're trying to accomplish. So, you know, when you're looking at like how unrealistic or realistic they are, you have to take that with a bit of a grain of salt. Um, you know, I don't think Democrats are going to be able to do much more than executive orders unless we we are able to take back the Senate and possibly even get rid of the filibuster. So 
yeah, just you're thinking about what's what's ambitious and and what's realistic. They're they're all <laughs> they're all a bit of a stretch, but uh, Sanders' plan has a price tag of sixteen point three trillion, and other candidates' plans are clustering closer to one to three trillion dollars. So I think when it, just looking at it from a high level. Sanders' ambitions are are really quite large. Um, uh, Buttigieg and Klobuchar both support carbon pricing, which has gotten close in the past. So if you think about, you know, the past is a predictor of future ability to get something done, that's something to consider. And then going back to what I, you know, just mentioned, a lot of the candidates are focusing with, on what they can do by executive order, which I think really makes sense um, in this political environment. Stepping even further back from this, Aaron, and looking at the climate, uh, excuse me, the candidates' climate policies, you know, we range from the spectrum on the Republican side for the, you know, pointed absence of policies to the Democrat side where we have really ambitious visions, but it's going to take a lot to get these through both houses of Congress. Where do the candidates fall and what do you see as the feasibility of, of these yeah, unfortunately, we have a real reality of partisanship and just a difficulty to get much of anything done, you know, particularly if, if it doesn't have bipartisan support, which, you know, I think it's clear looking at this from a high level, you're seeing Democrats with pretty ambitious vision and the, Demo you know, the Republican nominees who haven't put forward any, any climate plans. And um, that doesn't necessarily trickle down to members of Congress. Some some Republicans are very interested in climate issues, but you know, on the whole, they're on pretty different pages. So, I do think when when thinking about how to get things done and what's realistic, you know, Democrats really do need to take back the Senate and probably even get rid of the filibuster to make progress on some of these higher order ideas. Um, but looking at the candidates' plans themselves, you know, Sanders has a price tag of $13.3 trillion, while the other candidates are clustering closer to $1 to $3 trillion. So there's even quite a difference in, in our nominees when it comes to, to ambition and, and, and the price tag. Uh, Buttigieg and Klobuchar are both supporting carbon pricing, which has gotten fairly close in the past. So that that's something you know that we we may be able be maybe more likely to be able to get done um and a lot of the candidates are talking about what they can do by executive order which i think really makes sense in this environment it's an interesting perspective as you know as we look at what the dems are doing it's clear that they're very eager to hit the undo button on a lot of trump's rollbacks of environmental policies as you mentioned uh, somewhat carbon pricing Others want to make their mark with really broad, more sweeping Green New Deal type programs, which is more, I would say, in the Sanders camp. Did you see a common denominator in the vision by the Democrat nominees? Or is this really just a case of it's the primaries and candidates' positions are radically distinct and differentiated so that they have a clear platform going into um, the primaries? Yeah, so that's a great point, Anne. All of the candidates did endorse the Green New Deal with varying degrees of enthusiasm, I think it's fair to say. Um, and they all agreed to decarbonizing by 2050. The specifics um, are a little different. Biden and Buttigieg's plans, they rely on private sector investment. Well, for example, 
everything in Warren's plans are clearly paid for through taxes and, and through cuts. Um, they all do agree in broad strokes about the scale of the problem and are, are aligned on the high-level goals. Um, and I don't see their ambitions really leveling off. I think that climate is really important for a key constituency of voters, you know, namely millennials who are a huge voting block, followed by Gen Z, who's even bigger and, and even more supportive of, a, of aggressively tackling climate change. Um, and even young Republicans support a climate agenda and have been pushing for it. You know, Frank Luntz has come out with guidance for Republicans saying, you know, 60% of your young, your young voters care about this issue, and it's not something that you're going to be able to continually ignore. Um, yeah, so I think of, you know, who's, who's kind of out in front and where the differences are. Sanders you know, has a very aggressive, very um, expensive plan. He also recently got the endorsement of the Sunrise Movement, who really helped kind of think through and shape the Green New Deal. Um, but I'd say that the candidates are more aligned at the high level than they are opposed to each other. That's interesting and, and helpful when thinking about how we move forward. One of the things that struck me when you were talking about dollars was just simply the, the cost. And it's important, obviously, as we look at general fiscal policy um, to think about what it would actually take to get this done. I mean, we are going into a primary season where the U.S. deficit is higher than it's ever been in recent history, um, largely due to changes in policy, tax policy and spending. And we're talking about priorities around climate in the trillions. How mm -hmm. does this budget compare, essentially, to other budgets that we see being pushed through, such as um, those for the Department of Defense or, quote unquote, entitlement programs like Social Security? Yeah, that, that's a good, uh, good framing for it. So as far as scale, I, I looked at a 2019 article in The Nation that looked not only at the Pentagon's base budget, but what we spend on private military contractors, weapons systems projects, emergency funding for the border, you know, one of Trump's pet projects, the VA, the war on terror. And though we look at budgets in the billions, the actual spending taken all together is more like $1 trillion per year. Um, so looking at something on the order of $10 trillion over 10 years, it's a huge number when you look at it more holistically. And I do want to note, you know, the, the candidate spending plans, like, you know, they go from 1.7 trillion to Bernie's plan, the most aggressive at 13.6 trillion. And those are over 10 years. So when you compare that to military spending, which again is, is something like 10 trillion over 10 years when looking at it, at, at it all together, 16, 0.3 trillion all of a sudden doesn't seem quite so radical, you know. Um, and then, yeah, kind of going deeper on where the plans sit themselves, I think it's fair to say that the more progressive candidates' plans are are higher. You know, they have a higher price tag. They rely less on private investment coming in. Um, Warren's plan, by way of comparison, is three trillion, but you know, Klobuchar is considered more moderate, but her plan is two to three trillion. 
you know, a big portion of which is infrastructure spending, where other candidates are, are clustering around $2 trillion. Um, so there, there's, a, there's a broad range, but they actually compare, you know, and, and make, make sense, you know, when you're, when you're looking at them compared to something like military spending. Are these being characterized or framed financially as sort of taking over existing pieces of the pie, or are we literally adding a new wedge essentially to the costs of uh, running this country? Yeah, I yeah, I think that really depends on on the specifics of the plans. You know, a lot of them include increased spending for energy efficiency, spending for R and D, and and that's that is to be fair often head and shoulders above where it stands today, but obviously those initiatives are, are already underway and are already funded to some degree. So yeah, we're not talking about brand new programs. Um, but again, that really, it really does depend on the specifics of, of each one. But there's, I would say that when you're thinking about total dollars, it is incrementally more but based on spending that we are in investments that we are making today. Um, stepping back from this, we're all very interested in what's going on at the federal level, but the reality is, is the federal government has been quite weak as it relates to both energy policy and moving forward energy programs or even setting and meeting aggressive climate goals and um, you know the mitigation policies required to meet those goals. Do you think that there remains a role for the federal government in doing this? Can the federal government actually take action, or do we need to be looking at the collective action of the states and cities and municipalities and really taking this forward? Yeah, and I think that's an excellent point. States and cities are the leaders here. Federal government has not had a coherent and overarching energy policy, I think you could really say ever, um, and certainly not now. So I, yeah, I do think that um, we're taking our cues from leadership that's already going on and is already out there. Um, you know, just looking at something like Governor Inslee's plan, um, which has been picked up by candidates like Warren, because it is really thoughtful and, and that's the kind of leadership that we're seeing across the country. Yeah, it's interesting that um, that uh, these policies that are considered to be very much in the domain of uh, sort of democratic, the democratic platform, ultimately are being driven through state entities that are sort of more akin to the Republican platform of this sort of federalism in the, the truest mm. sense, which is mm -hmm. politically fascinating to me. Um, with that, uh, thinking about the Republican side, you know, the candidates have really danced around the idea of climate change as something that maybe is happening, but we're not spending dollars on it, with the exception of the president who says things like, you look at our air and our water and it's at a record clean, for example. But how do we square this with um, some of the thinking of the major utilities that are really also not unlike states and, uh, you know, municipalities? moving forward with very aggressive plans to be 100% carbon-free by, say, 2050 in some cases, or some even sooner? Yeah, you know, I don't think you can square it. I think Republicans and utilities, if you're comparing them, are really on different planets. Um, utilities have to think long-term. 
they want to serve their customers and their shareholders who are demanding clean energy. We're, you know, we've already reached price parity on a lot of renewable technologies. So utilities are thinking with their pocketbooks when they're making these pledges to go carbon free. And politics works on much shorter cycles and has very different incentives. So, you know, comparing them, I think utilities are on the right side of history on this one. The energy industry is decarbonizing faster than any other sector of the economy. And I think that's one of the main reasons I find this work so exciting. You know, we, we really are seeing leadership in our industry that, that other sectors are going to have to play catch up to reach. You know, it is really exciting. And you're right. There is an incredible amount of leadership. And what's fascinating is, as you know, it, all of this leadership is largely invisible to the public. Mm-hmm. So in many ways, you know, your average consumer is not aware of the strides that are being made, again, at utilities, at the state and local levels, and are really looking for the federal government, for the presidency to step forward on this platform. And it's interesting that it's taking so long for for it to catch up to essentially what is the sort of... Um, movement being led from the ground up, you know. So what else jumped out to you, Erin? One difference and something I found really interesting looking at the candidates' approaches to this issue is that all the candidates save Elizabeth Warren had a climate plan, you know, and those were ambitious and far-reaching to be sure, but she actually has woven climate into her her many plans, and I think it's up to five now, spanning land use, economics, trade, international relations, where she really has, you know, ambitious ideas in each of those areas. And she views climate as a failure of, you know, our our politics and money in politics versus just kind of a standalone issue to tackle. And I did find that take you know, pretty distinct and interesting. This has been great, Erin. I want to thank you for putting together such a great thought piece and for joining me today in this discussion. Thanks, Anne. It was a fun opportunity. Yeah, it was pretty great. I'm excited to see the feedback that you get from your blog and and on this podcast. And like most of you out there, we look forward to seeing the results of the New Hampshire primary. We'll all be sticking close to our news cycle and or podcasts if you're Erin. This wraps up another episode of Current. Thanks for listening. And Current was created by Illum's production team, music by Blue Dot Sessions. See you next time.